This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. You can't help me if you can't help yourself. You better make a laugh. Yes, cars, trucks, all things electric. Let's turn to Craig Trudell, our uh, auto team's leader, joining us from our Detroit bureau. And you can follow uh, Craig on uh, Twitter at CRTRUD. Craig, uh, give us the news about uh, Tesla, the trucking business, and what they want to do to those uh, tractor trailers. Well, so Tesla made some some big news last night with uh, bringing out the the semi. Uh, that that's a, a truck that's not going to be uh, in production until 2019. And uh, I think, as Musk uh, said recently on an earnings call, uh, maybe we shouldn't uh, set our uh, watches uh, by what he <laughs> says because he's often a little bit behind schedule. But uh, but but certainly this is uh, this this is a an, an interesting move on his part. Uh, the the Class Eight truck market uh, here in North America has uh, a number of players that uh, that are pursuing electrification. Uh, Daimler is one of them. Uh, Picar is a, another big company that's uh, that, that's looking into this. You have diesel engine makers like Cummins also spending money uh, toward this effort. But all of them are kind of poo-pooing the idea that this uh, that batteries make sense for big uh, big rigs, uh, big haulers, and and sort of uh, you know suggesting that this is something that that isn't going to happen anytime soon. Uh, Musk, uh, as usual, you know, uh, went uh, went out on stage last night with a, a heck of a lot of bravado and talked about uh, a semi truck that can, uh, you know, go 500 miles and and uh, you know, it's a, it's a significant uh, uh, step for for the company to make and one that they maybe need to do for uh, for purposes of, well, of messaging. <laughs> so many uh, questions. How many batteries does he have to have in that truck to make it go 500 miles without having to stop and charge? He was really light on details in terms of what the battery makeup is going to be. He did say that the motors in this uh, semi will will be uh, shared with the Model 3, but presumably these are going to be massive, heavy, very expensive batteries. He also didn't talk about a, a price tag for the, the semi, uh, but did talk about uh, you know the, the total cost of ownership and and uh, the idea that it will be lower than what it costs for for diesel. Uh, that's almost assuredly going to be a calculation that Tesla has made uh, with some, uh, you know, friendly math uh, for themselves. Uh, presumably that the truck will cost more than a diesel uh, semi would, but uh, they're making calculations about, uh, you know, fuel savings and, and less maintenance uh, because you're not going to have to replace brakes. You're not going to have as many moving parts uh, in a mm-hmm. battery semi as opposed to a, a, a diesel truck. Craig, uh, can you give us an update on the Model 3? How's that working out for them? It's also interesting that there was no talk about Model 3 last night. Uh, Obviously, we know that... And isn't this supposed to be the flagship in a sense? This is supposed to be the electric car for the masses that's supposed to turn the company into something more profitable, or shall I just say profitable, even though it's got a $53 billion (laughs) market cap. It's crazy, yeah. The... the, uh, 
that that car's uh, supposed that that car will start at thirty five thousand dollars. They were uh, supposed to make about fifteen hundred in the third quarter. They ended up uh, coming nowhere near that, making two sixty. Uh, and really, you he- you heard uh, Musk sort of send a mixed message on the uh, the latest earnings call, where he he talked about you know some optimism for for uh, getting out of production hell, as he put it. But at the same time, you know, was was uh, not uh, very forthcoming about when the company is going to reach uh, targets that uh, that it set previously, and you know, really, it's a it's kind of a, a situation where the the company is is uh, burning through, you know, a billion dollars a quarter in cash and making significant investments to get that car out the door, and until they are able to uh, to solve the production problems they're having, uh, the payoff for all that investment uh, is is sort of nowhere to be found. So uh, it, it is significant that they took orders for the semi and the Roadster sports car that they showed last night. Well, wait, uh, wait, wait, wait. This because is they what... need some cash uh, coming in right now. I feel like it was classic Tesla, right? Uh, big announcement, the semi, and then all of a sudden they're like, hey, yeah, we got this Roadster also. Uh, you know, they already have production problems, Craig. How does creating a Roadster, another model, um, help them or hurt them? It's it's really I, I think you know there's the bear case right is is that you know this is a this is a distraction and a sideshow that that uh, you know a, a case of Musk you know waving a shiny new object out in front of us uh, as he's having you know trouble with the Model Three. Uh, I, I guess you know the the bull case is look this is this is an example of Musk keeping the the cupboard uh, full for you know the next couple years of, of products to be excited about. And, you know, the enthusiasm that you see at events like this for, for the Roadster and, and for the Semi, uh, you know, show that, uh, you know, the, the plan that has worked for them in the past, uh, you know, may continue to work out for them. Uh, you know, they, they had trouble building the Model X a couple years ago and sort of distracted us all from those problems by showing the Model 3 and taking hundreds of thousands of reservations for those. Uh, uh, Craig, so let me just go back to the Model Three for just a, a second. You said they did they they plan to do fifteen hundred a quarter, is that right? That's right. Uh, okay, in the third quarter. Yep. Okay, so they fifteen hundred a, a quarter. By my math, that's that's six thousand a year, right? Right, and they were talking about getting to five thousand a week. Uh, at some point uh, uh, toward the end of this year, and ten thousand a week at some point next year. So they were talking about you know sort of exponential growth in production, and now they're they're not uh, saying when they'll get to ten thousand a week. Uh, really, sort of casting doubt on on you know them getting anywhere close to targets that uh, you know Musk has has thrown out there uh, anytime soon. I was just comparing it mentally to the fact that Ferrari makes about seven thousand a year. Make yeah, a thousand right. more than they would at the run rate of Tesla. Tesla shares, by the way, up one and a half percent today. Uh, they were up as much as four and a half percent at their highs of the day. Certainly off it, but nonetheless, uh, investors some enthusiasm. Pim, if you will, continued enthusiasm. Stock right now at three seventeen twenty a share. Tesla shares in twenty seventeen up forty eight percent. Right 
It is the right time for Dave Wilson and his chart of the day. Dave Wilson, Bloomberg Stocks columnist, editor, and blogger at MLive. Go, Dave, tell us about your chart of the day. Absolutely. This is the right time. Lisa Stanfield, British singer. It seemed appropriate since the headline refers to not minding the gap. You know, of course, they tell you that in the London uh, Underground. Uh, in any case, it's all about what's happening with Treasury yields. You know, Charlie Pell just mentioned a flattening yield curve. Joe Weisenthal was talking about it earlier. It's the whole idea that if you look at Treasury securities, the yield gap between them is narrowing. Uh, take the two-year and the 10-year Treasury note as an example. Uh, that gap's down to like 62 one-hundredths of a percentage point or 62 basis points. That's half what it was a year ago. Now, the question is whether that's an issue for stocks. And Ari Wald over at Oppenheimer ran the numbers, and the short answer is no. In fact, with yields where they are and moving as they are, you tend to get the biggest gains, at least you have historically, going back to 1978. You know, he ran the numbers looking at uh, yield gaps of different sizes. And of course, uh, cases where the yield was inverted, where the 10-year uh, actually had a lower yield than the two-year. And you have the best performance historically in the S&P 500, where we are now, with a gap of one percentage point or less and with 10 years higher than two, and with the gap narrowing, as it's been doing. So, I mean, we're talking about one month, three months, six months, 12 months. It doesn't matter. All those time periods, right, the gap uh, is such that mm -hmm. stocks have done relatively well historically. So, you know, where we are, you could argue, is a sweet spot for stocks. And if you want to know more, folks, send me an email. I'll get you the chart. The explanation that goes with it and everything I do going forward, the email address is dwilson at Bloomberg.net. That's dwilson at Bloomberg.net. All right, Dave Wilson, thank you so much for that. All right, we're going to get to now the most uh, read story in the past 60 minutes on the Bloomberg terminal. Oxycontin maker Purdue Pharma proposing a global settlement in an attempt to end state investigations and lawsuits over the U.S. opioid epidemic. This is according to people familiar with the talks. Let's bring in our own Jeff Feely. He's Bloomberg News legal reporter in our Wilmington, North Carolina bureau. Jeff, tell us about this latest development. Well, our sources are telling us that uh, lawyers for Purdue Pharma have been approaching some southern state attorney generals, uh, flirting proposals for a global settlement of opioid litigation. Uh, the the purpose of the talk seemed to be the idea to get the idea out that uh, that these states who haven't already sued don't need to sue, that there's already a global settlement in the works. Uh, some folks are thinking that this is a way of trying to choke off more of these state suits. Uh, we already have more than a dozen states who have sued drug makers and drug distributors over uh, the opioid crisis. Uh, talks are obviously in the early stages. There haven't been any specific numbers thrown around. One of the components would be changes to the business practices of the manufacturers. Uh, that's basically where we are at this point. Jeff, tell us about the legal people, the legal the lawyers uh, and the experts who are involved on both sides uh, of this uh, of this situation to maybe give us a clue as to what will happen next. Well, you've got sort of an all-star cast here. On the defense side, uh, Purdue Pharma has hired Sheila Birnbaum, who is a veteran mass tort defense lawyer who is uh, known for putting together so-called global settlements uh, of large cases. She was involved in cases such as the NFL concussion settlement, 
the settlements of uh, Pfizer's hormone replacement uh, uh, lawsuits and uh, a bunch of uh, large asbestos um, settlements. And, and the, the first responders uh, case. Oh, that's uh, right, 9 11. Right, correct. for the 9 11 right. uh, World Trade Center attacks. Thank you for reminding me, sir. That's correct. You are correct. And on the plaintiff side, you know, we're getting the band back together from Big Tobacco. We've right. got Joe Rice. Mm-hmm. We've got uh, Steve Berman. We've got Mike Papantonio. We've got Mike Moore, the former Attorney General of Mississippi, who was one of the the leaders of the Big Tobacco thing. So a lot of star power to be found here. But a settlement at this stage of the game, would we have all of the pertinent players that have led to this opioid epidemic. As you lay out in your story, you talk about the more than 60,000 people have died from the overdose just in 2016 alone. There was a five-fold increase in overdose deaths involving synthetic opioids, uh, you know, from 2013 to 2016. We talk about the costs of this at $78.5 billion in terms of health care costs and economic costs. So if there is a settlement, Jeff, at this stage of the game, are we going to be getting at all those crucial players that are involved in this epidemic? Very good question. And the chances of getting a settlement at this stage are pretty slim to none. This is, as one of our experts says, the opening bid. And uh, we're not even sure at this point that the global talks would include the drug distributors, folks like McKesson, Cardinal Mm -hmm. Health, Amerisource Bergen. They have potentially very large exposure here because of their handling of the distribution of opioid drugs. As I'm sure many of your uh, listeners are aware, uh, there was a Pulitzer Prize winning story by the Charleston, West Virginia newspaper a year or so ago that talked about uh, the flood of opioid pills that came into a city mm-hmm. down there, Huntington, and there were like a it's thousand crazy. pills for each man, woman, and child in this city. So the drug distributors uh, have a role to play in this along with the manufacturers. We're pretty far away yeah. from getting to, uh, you know, a big tobacco style number. Okay. we got to leave it on that note. And obviously a story that we're going to be following, but uh, great reporting uh, by by you and uh, Jared Hopkins. Jeff Feely, he is our Bloomberg News legal reporter joining us from our bureau in Wilmington, North Carolina. What's the buzz? Tell me what's happening. What's the buzz? Tell me what's happening. What's the yes, buzz? indeed. Lots of buzz about Bitcoin. We all want to know what's going on with it. What's going to happen down the road with it. Uh, Bitcoin coming close to, I think, $8,000 today. Let's talk about this with uh, Chris Berniski. He's partner at Placeholder. It's a venture venture capital firm, excuse me, that invests in cryptocurrencies. Uh, He's also an advisor on the board, uh, or I should say an on the board of advisors at ARK Investment Management. I can't even read my notes. Did I get that right? <laughs> you got it all right. All right. And he joins us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio, TGIF. Uh, you're also an author of the newly released book. It's called Crypto Assets, The Innovative Investor's Guide to Bitcoin and Beyond. It's pretty dense. There's a lot of stuff in here. And I feel like there's still so much yet to be figured out when it comes to cryptocurrencies. What's the question you get, get asked most often? The question I get asked most often is, how do I get exposure to this space? Um, Because people, it's an entirely new market, 
right? An entirely new asset class. And that requires, you know, navigating different exchanges, navigating different forms of custody. There's a lot of questions that come up in people's minds. And it's actually why we wrote the book, right? Uh, given it's a new asset class, there are all these new processes. And so it's not the kind of thing where you can just respond with one answer or two answers. Um, we ended up having to respond with the book just to get people to ramp, say, from zero to 50, um, as opposed to, you know, digesting a little bit of information on Twitter or a little bit of information in an article, we needed to paint the whole picture. How do you describe what Bitcoin is to people that are not familiar with this world? I think the easiest way to think of, of Bitcoin is to use the, uh, the analogy of what happened with voice. So if we go back to the 80s, uh, we had to spend a lot of money to call people internationally. And with voice over IP, things like Skype or FaceTime or whatever it may be, I can just call someone anywhere in the world. It connects to them through IP, through internet protocol. Yeah, but hold and on, hold on just a second, because I think also there's a legal issue. Right. I mean, one of the reasons why that happened had to do with the breakup of the bell system and the lack sure. of monopoly control over the price of that call. It wasn't a technology issue as much as it was a legal issue, wasn't it? Well, I would say it was largely a technology issue, too, in terms of just the, the bandwidth and the connectivity to be able to connect people globally through the Internet. Right. Okay. There was a All lot right. of infrastructure that had to be built. Um, but with the idea of Bitcoin and, and how do you describe it, this idea of money over IP. Right? It doesn't matter where a person is in the world. I can take their address and send them Bitcoin, and it gets to them. Uh, it, the transaction clears and settles to them within about an hour. I don't have to wait for any banking holidays, any weekends, anything like that. It's really easy to use. And so as money over Internet protocol, it's somewhat similar to what we can think of Skype as being. Um, then uh, the other side to money is also being a store of value. right? Mm -hmm. And this is where it has a decentralized supply schedule. So there's no central bank, right? And, and the supply schedule is controlled by software, which is where things start to get more abstract and people say, hang on, what, what's really going on here? Right. Um, I mean, because does that mean you can just put out more Bitcoin whenever you want? And how does that then, I don't sort understand. Sort of like stock. <laughs> yeah. You can just decide you want to sell more stock, so you create it. And as long as you have a financial institution that legally can accept it, You've just created money. And what does that do to value? This is precisely the problem that Bitcoin solved. So the way in which new Bitcoin is minted is actually through the transaction clearing and settlement process. So every 10 minutes, a new block of Bitcoin transactions is settled. And it's appended to Bitcoin's blockchain, a term that we've been hearing a lot about. In that process, a fixed amount of new Bitcoin is also minted. And that... Uh, amount that is minted gets cut in half every four years. Um, and this is all dictated by the software. And the software is run on computers, over 100,000 computers that are distributed globally. So originally... Who makes these rules? Yeah, exactly. The, just <laughs> I mean, if you've so, got software, can't someone just say, you know, I don't, this four-year rule? No, no, we're not doing the four-year rule. We're doing the two-year rule. It's, it's very similar to how Linux operates, right? Linux is a globally open used... Open-source right, um, uh, Open-source 
um, operating system. Right. And I think 75% of the cloud runs on top of Linux, which is maintained using a very similar governance system um, in terms of the way open source software is developed. So Bitcoin software is maintained by 400, roughly 450 uh, contributors, software developers around the world, who have to go through a very rigorous governance process for any updates to be merged. And I would say one of the most pivotal parts to Bitcoin is the supply schedule. So changing that supply schedule, that cadence of supply inflation uh, is highly unlikely. Who are these people though? And I go back to right, and I go back to Pim saying they could just change the rules at any time. Could they not? It, you have to look at the incentives, right? What would be their what incentive? keeps what keeps them orderly? What keeps them ethical? What keeps them? The entire system keeps them in check, right? Bitcoin has set up a software uh, where all the incentives of all the actors are aligned um, in order to propagate this idea of money over IP and it as a store of value. So that's from the computers that are running the software, right, which is, are commonly referred to as the miners. Mm -hmm. um, they have a vested interest, right, in not seeing the supply become hyperinflationary, say, because then people would stop using it on a global basis as a store of value. The developers, the open source software developers, um, they have a vested interest in continuing to see the Bitcoin software be used. And if they were to change the monetary policy, exactly as you, you, you both are asking, people would, would abort, right? They'd say, mm -hmm. I can't trust this, right? And so their livelihood is also tied to Bitcoin. And then there are all the companies that build applications that run on top of Bitcoin's operating system. Um, they also are, are tied to the way that things have been set up. So it's, it's a very delicate and nuanced system of checks and balances that hold this monetary policy in check. Uh, just quickly, give me about 10 seconds. If someone came to you and said, look, I want to invest in, in Bitcoin, what would you physically do with the money they handed to you? Well, I definitely wouldn't invest it for them. But um, a, a good way for people to get exposure if they want to get started is through Coinbase, uh, which is a very right. easy to use retail application, kind of like PayPal or Venmo or whatever it may be. Connects to your bank account. You deposit fiat currency. Chris Berniski, thank you very much. A partner at Placeholder. And his new book is Crypto Assets. Move around. Motion creates the motion. I feel the earth move under my you move like they do. I've never seen anyone move that fast. Shake. Shake. All right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose. Something's called movers and shakers. They cost a little more, but that name cracked me up. Bloomberg Markets, Movers and Shakers, with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. It is time for your Movers and Shakers, Winners and Losers, the Friday edition, my favorite edition. Carol Masser, Corey Johnson is off, Pip Fox in the house to talk us through some of the stocks on the move in today's session. Let's start with the S&P 500, 252 names in the index higher, 246 lower, eight unchanged, almost an even split. I want to talk a little bit about General Electric because we had a story uh, out on the Bloomberg General Electric narrowing its focus around several key markets, cutting costs and slashing the dividend. We know all of that, right? We got that over the last week or so. Now, with all that shrinking going on, it's only natural that the board of directors would follow suit. And that's what the company's new chairman and CEO, they, he, John Flannery, planning to reduce the size of the 18-member board, which features marquee names from Verizon, uh, their CEO, and some other folks. But anyway, he's going to reduce it by one-third. GE shares, Pam, just down two-tenths of a percent. They were up 1.2% at their highs in today's session, but ending a little
little bit lower. For the week, though, I just got to mention GE shares down 11%. Yeah, maybe they'll save some money by not having so many directors. You never know. You never know. Uh, let me tell you about the shares of a company called Stitch Fix. You know, heard about, about it? Yeah. Fix? Yes, this is the say that uh, five times fast. Uh, not a chance. Uh, <laughs> but I will say that it was an initial public offering. It came out at uh, well, it opened at about sixteen dollars ninety cents. It priced at fifteen dollars. It closed today at $15, although it was up about uh, 1% as we went into the close. Uh, Stitch Fix uh, debuted, and it is a fashion startup. And uh, the shares, well, it's sort of falling short of expectations and uh, a setback for the IPO market, something we've been watching. They were all looking for it to be between 18 and 20. Didn't happen. $15 is the price for Stitch Fix. Is this like Etsy? What's it like? What? Fitch, Fitch Stitch. Oh, it's a, uh, a retailer. Oh, it's a retailer. Yeah. I'm not familiar. All right, I'll have to check it out. Or maybe not. Do enough uh, shopping well, clear, already. Clearly the <laughs> investors are having second thoughts as well. All right, I think uh, Charlie shopping mentioned sir. it. It's like a shopping service. All right, Charlie, I think maybe mentioned this, so forgive me if I'm uh, being redundant, but hey, this is the number one gainer in the S&P 500 Foot Locker. FL is the ticker up 28%, up more than 9 bucks at $40.82 a share. Foot Locker showing signs of pulling out of a sneaker downturn that has torn through the athletic industry this year. How about that for some drama? Retailer kicking off its biggest intraday rally more than 30 years after posting third quarter earnings that handily topped analyst estimates. The company's CEO also saying he expects the chain to modestly beat the top and bottom line guidance it gave for the fourth quarter. So investors saying, hurrah, stock up 28% again in today's session. Still down though, Pim, 42% this year. Ouch. Uh, Shares of Viacom moving higher today by more than 10%. Uh, This has to do, of course, with a lot of uh, large-cap media stocks. Uh, They moved higher. Verizon perhaps making a bid for uh, some of the assets of 21st Century Fox as well as Comcast. Also, Meredith uh, Communications uh, contemplating a possible acquisition of time. But uh, we see that uh, the shares of Viacom move higher today by more than 10%. And I just do want to mention Gap because we were talking about it yesterday. Uh, they reported their latest uh, results uh, after the closing bell. Investors liked uh, what they heard. Stock up 7% in today's session to uh, 29.40 a share. Gap now uh, up about 31% so far this year. Were they out yesterday? Yeah, am I right? Or was it the day before? Yes, yesterday, yesterday. after the bell. And uh, as we talked with our Poonam Goyle, uh, better than expected uh, news from the retailer that's really struggled with like its Banana Republic brand. But uh, some enthusiasm based on the latest quarterly results. And again, Gap shares the number four gainer in the S&P 500, today up 7%. All right, Dave, you're up. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Dave. Wilson, where are you? Wilson! Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? We're going for the price on Wilson. Open up the door, it's Dave! Who? Dave! Hey, Mr. Wilson! Hey, Mr. Wilson, Bloomberg Stocks Commerce. What is your stock of the day? And... Tell us a little bit about what it means, because I know you got something connected to not just the stock, but what it means overall. Absolutely. It's a company called Maxwell Technologies, a maker of energy storage and power line equipment. The company's been publicly traded since 1983. The ticker is MXWL. And when you look at how this company uh, its shares have performed lately, it really shows you what insider trading, buying and selling, 
just standard issue kind of stuff, can mean in terms of how investors look at a company's value. Now, Maxwell's shares began slumping in September when the company sold $40 million of convertible notes. Last week, they fell to a two-year low after the release of third-quarter results, revenue trailed analyst average estimate in the Bloomberg survey. And then came the insider buying. Regulatory filings showed Maxwell CEO Franz Fink spent more than $1.1 million on his company's shares on Monday and Tuesday. He was joined on Tuesday by uh, one of the company's directors, Jörg Buchheim, who made a $1.3 million purchase. Now, Fink and Buchheim already have a profit on their investments. Maxwell ended the week with its biggest two-day gain in more than two years. The stock climbed almost 15%, including today's advance, which amounted to 7.7%. Thank you very much. Dave Wilson. Very good uh, analysis. You know, next week we're going to be kind of thin on earnings, right? We got Urban Outfitters, I believe. They're going to be releasing their results uh, on Monday. But we're ending the, the sort of earnings season. What do you take away from all this? Well, when you look at the numbers on the S&P 500, you've got like a 7.5% profit growth. But you look out to the this quarter and then the first couple quarters of next year, you've got uh, around 11% anticipated in terms of the earnings increase. So, you know, the numbers are, are definitely coming in, you know, and, and sort of justifying, at least to some extent, the fact that, you know, we've seen records in the S&P 500. It's all so about earnings So we're again. actually trading on fundamentals? Well, it would appear that at least the fundamentals are helping. All right. Dave Wilson, our Bloomberg Stocks columnist, right here on Bloomberg Radio. what that is everybody tis that time of the year the annual christmas spectacular getting underway with the one and only radio city rockets stacy pato and melinda farrell are two rockets and oh my god they are in our bloomberg 1130 studio this is like one of my favorite things of the year welcome thank you, <laughs> thank you. So sorry we get a little silly tell me though first of all how long you guys have been rockets and how you got into it this is my 16th season as a Rockette. 16 and, years. Yep, 16 years, and it's been magical the whole journey. Stacey, how about for you? Uh, this is my 13th season kicking my heels up. How so. do you do that for so long? You know, we've all trained our whole lives. Rockettes are really athletes, so we've trained our whole lives for this, and we have a lot of rehearsal and to prepare us to bring a perfect show to you guys every year. Tell us about what would be a, a typical day of training for you. <laughs> so we rehearse from 10 to 5, six days a week. We have about six weeks of rehearsal before we open the show, and then we do 17 shows a week. So it's a pretty intense schedule, but we want to make sure that we get Christmas to as many people as we can. The show is fantastic, and I've seen it a couple times with my daughter. Tell me, though, because you guys have kind of embraced digital and some different things and technology. So how do you kind of keep evolving it but also staying true to some of the core that we expect when we go to see it? Absolutely. Um, Radio City has invested in a new technology called digital mapping, and that means that there's projections happening on the walls and the ceilings that enhance each and every scene. And this new addition can be uh, enjoyed from like the first row or the third res, so third mes, no matter where you are uh, at Radio City. And this is different from the 3D that you guys have done, right? Yes, the 3D film is still there at the very beginning. Um, and of course, you were saying the things that everybody loves to see year after year, like the parade of the wind soldiers and the living nativity. So we still have those traditional numbers, but then balancing that with the new technology that we brought in this year, it's sure to make the show really fresh. Stacey, uh, 250 people are necessary to put this on. That's a lot of people. Did they uh, also, I mean, there's an off-season 
what does everybody do in the off season? So a shout out to our wonderful, wonderful crew. Um, it takes a village to make this show happen between wardrobe and our crew backstage is choreographed off stage as much as it is on stage. So it's really amazing to see back there. Um, and year round, there's always events at Radio City. So we're lucky enough to be dancing as all year round doing special events as well. What's it like in between, I think? Because you guys have some costume changes. Is it just crazy? There's eight costume <laughs> changes, and the quickest of which is 78 seconds. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> Has anybody ever walked out, like, still zipping up something? Well, sometimes you're still putting your glove on a little bit. <laughs> but, you know, we're professionals, so we make it very discreet. <laughs> I bet. Melinda, uh, the uh, effort, the physical effort to stay healthy and also to repair any damage that might occur. I mean, obviously, this is a very physically intense experience. Uh, tell us about that routine. How do you do that? Um, everybody has kind of a, a different thing that they do to make sure that they stay healthy throughout the holiday season. As Melinda said, we do 17 shows per week. Um, so it's 90 minutes of a show, sometimes four in one day. It is very grueling, but we have ice tubs, just like professional athletes that we get into after each show to help repair our muscles so that we're ready to entertain the thousands of people that are coming to see us the next day. I know a foot doctor that works with you guys. I just want you to know. <laughs> That's why I go to him, because he works with you guys. Um, are you, like when you have multiple shows in a day, um, Melinda, do you guys do one show and then take a break or what? So there's always a break between shows. It's typically about an hour to an hour and a half, depending on the day. Yeah. So we try to rest. We fuel our bodies with some good food, sometimes a couple Christmas cookies, you know, um, and get ourselves ready to go again. So there's always, you know, maintenance there. What's it like on the stage? Because uh, I know what it's, it's like magical. to be in the audience. No, but, but you've done it a lot of times. Like, you look out there, it's a lot of kids, which is really kind of wonderful. It is. It's, it's 6,000 seats, right? Yeah. So we're bringing joy and happiness to so many people out there. And when you get and you're looking out at the audience, you can see everyone's faces. And you can see that we're really helping people create memories. And we're touching them. And we're kicking off their Christmas season. And that's why you know it's never too early to kind of kick off the Christmas season. I encourage everyone to come see our show, especially in November. Get yourself in a good mood. You're guaranteed to leave with a smile on your face and a warm feeling in your heart. Before you get all crazy with all the shopping and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, clearly. Uh, as far as the, uh, the actual uh, numbers, that you perform. Are there new numbers each year? Not every year there is there an entire new number, but there's always elements. So there's always something new to see. Um, as Stacey was saying, the show is very big and there's all this digital mapping, which is a very exciting thing this year. Is new, Does that make it element. more challenging for you as a, as a dancer, as a performer? The digital to mapping? Have the, yes. Um, I think it just kind of enhances our experience. So you're seeing people react to multiple things, um, the digital mapping as well as the live dancing. So it just kind of enhances the experience. I want to ask you a little bit about the animals, because that is really one of my favorite, the, the live nativity. Um, you guys shared some statistics with us. They drink 450 bottles of water during the eight-week run, eat 340 bales of hay, 560 loaves of seven-grain bread. Tell me, though, what it's like working with the animals, because like kids, animals can be predictable or unpredictable. You know, they're professionals, I'll tell you. Um, one of those, one of the camels Are you telling Stacey have... nothing ever goes wrong? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a camel well, doesn't wander? Sometimes they may, perchance, go to the bathroom on stage but other than that they're very professional ted has been in the show longer than either of us that's mm -hmm. one of the camels wow. and his resume is, is probably stronger than either of ours <laughs> they're, they're professionals this is what they do for a living too it's wonderful this all started like in 1933 wow that's mm -hmm. when the first uh, christmas spectacular I, I believe correct do you have plans you're veterans of the show but 
do you have plans or desires to move on to Broadway or other kinds of uh, performance? Personally, The Rockettes, it fulfills all the things dance-wise that I really wanted to do in my career. Um, it's something that's very precise, and it's, you have to make everyone who's very indivi individual look the same. And I think that becomes very challenging, but very fulfilling at the same time. So I absolutely love it. Did you and always want to become a dancer? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Same absolutely. for you, Stacey? <laughs> yes, dancer. For sure. <laughs> all right. So I have to ask you, is there a favorite moment that you guys have in the show? Stacy? why don't you start? Oh, man, that's so hard to do. <laughs> you choose. can pick one or two. <laughs> I, I love our number New York at Christmas. Um, if you've seen the show before, there's a, that's a the double. That's right? Yeah, it's a double-decker double red bus, and it just screams traditional rocket number to me. Half of us are wearing red. Half of us are wearing green. We travel around the city. The digital screen behind us it takes us to Times Square and Columbus Circle and Central Park and all the sites in the city. And at the very end, we get out and we perform a show-stopping number, and we do our legendary kick line. It's just, it's cool every time. It is pretty cool. <laughs> pretty cool. How about you, Melinda? For me, it's definitely the Parade of the Wooden Soldiers. You just <sighs> talked about the Rockettes being around since 1933 and the Christmas Spectacular. And it's something very special to me to have done the same steps as every Rockette sister before me mm -hmm. and knowing that every Rockette after me will be doing the same steps. I think that's really cool and being part of that legacy in New York history. Have you ever had a situation where you tell someone that you're a Rockette and they don't believe you? <laughs> that has happened a couple of times, actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you have to like... start kicking? <laughs> <laughs> Not typically. There's always pictures around, you know. <laughs> Hope you have good health insurance. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Certainly going to need it. So uh, when it starts last night? Last night was officially opening night. And it goes all the way through? January 1st. 1st. And we want to make sure that everybody gets their tickets. You can go to rockets.com backslash Christmas, or you can stop by the Radio City box office. And I know you'll be in the Macy's Day yep. Thanksgiving Day Parade, which is always a treat. Um, thank you so much. Good luck with everything and have a great run. Thank you so Thanks much. So much Happy fun. holidays. Merry Christmas. Uh, Stacey Pato, Melinda Farrell, uh, Radio City Rockets, joining us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.